0: Welcome back to Oliver's Insights, part of the Simplifying Investing podcast series. It's great to have you here. A reminder that this podcast is general in nature and hasn't taken your circumstances into account. It's important you consider your personal circumstances and speak to a financial advisor before deciding what's right for you. Any general tax information provided is provided as a guide only. And with that out of the way, here's Shane. Hey there and welcome to the latest issue of the Oliver's Insights podcast series. This week we're going to have a look at three reasons why it makes sense to err on the side of optimism as an investor. Now, the news as presented to us has always had a bit of a negative bent. but one could be forgiven for thinking that it's become even more negative with constant stories in recent times of disasters, conflict, wrongdoing, grievance and loss. Consistent with this, it seems that the worry list for investors is more threatening and confusing than ever. This was an issue prior to coronavirus with trade wars, social polarisation, tensions with China, worries about job loss from automation and ever-present predictions of a new financial crisis. crisis. Since the pandemic, though, we've seen much higher levels of public debt, inflation, geopolitical tensions, and rising alarm about climate change. All of these things adding to the worry list. These risks can't be ignored, but it's very easy to slip into a pessimistic perspective regarding the outlook. However, when it comes to investing, the historical track record shows that succumbing too much to pessimism doesn't pay. Now, there's three reasons why the worries these days might seem more worrying. Some might argue that since the GFC, the world has become a more negative place, and so gloominess or pessimism is justifiable. But given the events of the last century, ranging from far more deadly pandemics than the coronavirus pandemic, particularly once we allow for the impact of various treatments, including the vaccines, which weren't available in many of the historic cases, the Great Depression, several major wars and revolutions numerous recessions along the way, with high unemployment and financial panics, it's doubtful that this is really the case, viewed in the long-term sweep of history. There is no denying that there are things to worry about at present, notably inflation, political polarisation, less rational policy-making by governments, and geopolitical tensions, and that these may result in more constrained investment returns than we have become used to over the last few decades. But there is a psychological aspect to this, combining with greater access to information than ever and the rise of social media, which is serving to magnify perceptions around worries, all of which may be adding to a sense of pessimism. Firstly, our brains are wired in a way that makes us natural receptors of bad news. Humans tend to suffer from a behavioral trait known as loss aversion, in that a loss in financial wealth is felt much more negatively than the positive impact of the same size gain. This probably reflects the evolution of the human brain in the Pleistocene age, when the key was to avoid being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or squashed by a woolly mammoth. This left the human brain hardwired to be on the guard against threats and naturally risk-averse. So we are more predisposed to looking for and receiving bad news stories as opposed to good. Consequently, bad news and doom and gloom finds a more ready market than good news or balanced commentary as it appeals to our instinct to look for risks. Hence the old saying, bad news and pessimism sells. This is particularly true as bad news shows up in a more dramatic fashion, whereas good news tends to be more incremental. Reports of a plane crash, for example, or for that matter, a share market crash will be far more newsworthy, particularly these days in terms of generating clicks, than reports of less plane crashes year after year or decade after decade or a gradual rise in the share market Ever will. As a result, prognosticators of gloom are more likely to be revered as deep thinkers than are optimists. As English philosopher and economist John Stuart Mill once noted, I have observed that not the man who hopes when others despair, but the man who despairs when others hope, is admired by a large class of persons as a sage. Secondly, we are now more exposed to more information on everything, including our investments. We can now check facts, analyze things, sound informed, easier than ever. But for the most part, we have no way of weighing such information and no time to do so. So it's often really just noise. As Frank Zappa noted, information is not knowledge. Knowledge is not wisdom. This, of course, all comes with a cost for investors. If we don't have a process to filter the increased information flow and focus on what matters, we can suffer from information overload. This can be bad for investors because as when faced with more and often bad news, we can freeze up and make the wrong decisions with our investments. A natural loss aversion can combine with what is called the recency bias that sees people give more weight to recent events in assessing the future to see investors project recent bad news into the future and so sell after a significant fall in the share market or their investment more broadly. As famed investor Peter Lynch once observed, stock market news has gone from hard to find in the 1970s and early 1980s, then very easy to find from the late 1980s onwards, and then in more recent times. Hard to get away from. Thirdly, and related to this, there's been an explosion in media competing for our attention. We are now bombarded with economic and financial news and opinions with 24-7 coverage by multiple websites, subscription services, finance updates, dedicated TV and online channels, chat rooms, and of course, social media. This has been magnified as everything is now measured with clicks. Stories and reporters that generate less clicks simply don't get a good look in. To get our attention, news needs to be entertaining and following from our aversion to loss in competing for our tension dramatic bad news trumps incremental good news and balanced commentary so naturally it seems that the bad news is badder and the worries more worrying than ever before which adds to a sense of gloom the political environment has added to this with politicians more polarized and more willing to scare voters Than ever before. Google the words "the coming financial crisis" and you'll find that it's teeming with references. When I did it the other day, there was something like 270 million search results as a result of that search. And as you might expect, many of the titles are alarming, such as "A recession worse than 2008," "How to survive and thrive," "Could working from home cause the next financial crisis?" Seems always the good things (laughs) come with a negative lining. Economic crash is inevitable. Three men who predicted the last financial crisis. What they're warning of now is terrifying. And of course, this one, How China's Debt Problem Could Trigger a financial crisis. People have always been making gloomy predictions of inevitable and imminent economic and financial disasters but prior to the information explosion in social media it was much harder to be regularly exposed to such disaster stories for most investors. The danger is that the combination of the ramp up in information and opinion combined with our natural inclination to zoom in on negative news is making us worse investors, more distracted, more pessimistic, more jittery and more focused on the short term. Now of course there's three reasons I think to be optimistic as an investor, or at least to err on the side of optimism, certainly not blind optimism. Firstly, with a degree of optimism, there is not much point in investing in the first place. As the famed value investor Benjamin Graham pointed out many years ago, to be an investor, you must be a believer in a better tomorrow. If you don't believe the bank will look after your deposits, that most borrowers will pay back their debts, that most companies will see rising profits over time, supporting a return to investors, that properties will earn rents, etc., then there is no point in investing. To be a successful investor, you need to have a reasonably favourable view about the future. Secondly, the history of share markets and other growth assets like property in developed, well-managed countries with a firm commitment to the rule of law has been one of the triumph of the optimists. Sure, share markets go through periodic bear markets and often lengthy periods of weakness, where pessimists, of course, get their time in the sun. But the long-term trend has been up, underpinned by the desire of humans to find better ways of doing things, resulting in real growth in our living standards over time. This can be seen in one of my favourite charts, which shows the value of $1 invested in Australian shares, bonds and cash back in 1900, and of course, allowing for dividends and interest reinvested along the way. Cash is safe and so fine if you are pessimistic, but has low returns. And that $1 over the period since 1900 will have grown to $250 a day. Actually, sounds quite impressive. Amazing that $1 can grow to $250, but that of course is compounding. Bonds are even better, and that $1 will have grown to an even more impressive $9. $103. Again, the magic of compounding at work there. Shares are volatile and so have rough periods, as we know, in the 1930s, of course, 1987 share market crash, the big collapse in shares in the mid 1970s, and so on. Often like to call that the Brady Bunch crash because Brady Bunch was canned in 1974, at which point the Australian share market had fallen something like 59%. So we know that volatility is there, but if you can look through that, they will grow your wealth. And that $1 back in 1900 will have grown to 811 thousand dollars today. So how does that happen? Of course, it's the magic of compounding with $1 gets a return like all the other assets but of course for shares they're far more substantial over time and of course that grows your wealth and when returns occur on top of returns you get that magical explosion in value over long periods of time now this does not mean a blind optimism where you get sucked in with the crowd when it becomes euphoric or sucked into every new whiz-bang investment obsession that comes along like bitcoin a few years ago or the dot-com stocks of the 1980s if an investment looks too good to be true and the crowd is piling in then it probably is particularly if the main reason you are buying in is because of huge recent gains. So the key is cautious, not blind optimism. Finally, even when it might pay to be pessimistic, and hence out of the market in corrections and bear markets, trying to get the timing right can be very hard. In hindsight, many downswings in markets like the GFC look inevitable and hence forecastable. And so it's natural to think you can anticipate downswings going forward, but trying to time the market in terms of both getting out ahead of the fall and back in for the recovery is very difficult. A good way to demonstrate this is with a comparison of returns if an investor is fully invested in shares versus missing out on the best or worst days. And we've done a little exercise Started back in January 1995. If you'd invested your money in Australian shares in January 1995, you would have returned roughly 9.3% per annum over the period since, with dividends added in but not allowing for franking credits, tax, and fees. If alternatively you were pessimistic about the outlook and managed to avoid the 10 worst days, you would have boosted your return to 12.2% per annum. And if you avoided the 40 worst days, it would have been boosted to 17.1% per annum. But this is very hard, and many investors only get really pessimistic and get out of the market after the bad returns have actually occurred, just in time to miss some of the best days. For example, if by trying to time the market, you miss the 10 best days, the return falls to just 7.2%. If you miss the 40 best days, that 9.3% buy and hold return drops all the way down to just 3% per annum. As Peter Lynch, who we heard from a little bit earlier, has pointed out, more money has been lost trying to anticipate and protect from corrections than actually in them. On a day-to-day basis, it sits around 50-50 as to whether shares will be up or down But since 1900, shares in the US have had positive returns around seven years out of 10. And in Australia, it's around eight years out of 10. So getting too hung up in pessimism on the next crisis that will, on the basis of history, drive the market down in the two or three years out of 10 may mean that you end up missing out on the seven or eight years out of 10 when the share market rises. I'd like to end on just one final quote. Helen Keller once observed that no pessimist has ever discovered the secrets of the stars or sailed to an uncharted land or opened up a new heaven to the human spirit. I hope that's been of value. Until we meet again, adios. To keep up to date with Dr. Oliver in the Simplifying Investing podcast series, be sure to subscribe to your favorite streaming platform.